the ascended Lord of history. Um, help us to, uh, help me to be, um, to be clear and understandable. <laughs> Sometimes uh, ascension and resurrection can be complicated, but I pray that um, everyone here um, would have one thing at least that uh, you use to strike their hearts, to grip their hearts and move them um, towards you and a greater sense of you as the Lord of their life. Wherever we find ourselves, God, um, in this place, struggling perhaps with unbelief or discouragement or apathy or perhaps in a good place, we ask that you meet us and, and you again direct us and draw us to you. We give you thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this is the last Sunday of a kind of a short series on um, Eastertide. Um, for some of you, you'll probably be pretty happy that we're kind of moving on from a sermon series called Resurrection and the Cosmology of New Creation. Um, you're sick and tired of hearing about cosmology, but I hope that at least you know what cosmology is by the time you, you're done, right? Uh, this morning really is probably a misnamed sermon, Resurrection, the Kingdom of God. I'm really going to preach on the ascension of Jesus, although resurrection and ascension are very closely related uh, in the scriptures. Um, they kind of go together, and yet they can't can't collapse them together. So this morning, though, we have two scripture texts. The first one is 1 Corinthians 15, which is drawn from Paul's great um, chapter on the resurrection. And Paul here talks about both resurrection and ascension in here. And then the second uh, verse, or the second biblical text is from Acts 17. It's just a story about uh, the ministry and Paul um, bringing the gospel. So hear God's word to us this morning. Um, first from 1 Corinthians 15. Then comes the end when he, that is Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. When it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected that he is accepted who put all things under subjection of him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. And now from Acts 17. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some who were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of his brothers, some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are acting all against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, Jesus. 
And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The word of the Lord. Christian mission in the world takes shape as a political response to the exaltation of Jesus. Christian mission in the world is a political response to the exaltation of Jesus. And the exaltation of Jesus, we mean both the resurrection and his ascension into heaven. Christian mission is a response to these events. And in, because of this, it is political in nature. And by what I mean by political, don't think partisan necessarily, but for something to be political means it changes the order of things. How things, how bodies, communities, societies are ordered. That's what I mean by political. And Paul very much has this in mind, and this statement from Romans, or rather 1 Corinthians 15, is uh, a kind of arguably the most zoomed out wide-angle perspective on mission uh, from God's perspective that we find in the Bible. So let me just read it to you again. It's a, again, it's a cosmic perspective on mission. Then comes the end. The end, that is, the end of mission, right? When Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power, for he must reign, and that there is a reference to the ascension, he's reigning, he must reign until he has put all things under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected, who put all things under his feet, that God may be all in all. Now what Paul gives us here is, again, it's a cosmic, cosmological perspective on mission. And the ultimate goal of mission from God's perspective, is that he would be recognized as the Lord of all things. That he is the Lord of all things. And here it's, it's helpful to understand that the word Lord, um, the word Lord, especially in the sort of Greco-Roman context, is a word that, that has points to God, but also a sense of God as a title that refers to him ruling, as the one who rules like a king. So, Caesars were often spoken of as the Lord, um, kind of a divine figure, but a, a figure that has rule and authority in an empire. And so the recognition to, call, to recognize God as the Lord is not simply like, I believe in God, I believe he exists, but it's actually the recognition that he has rightful claim and reign within the world. And that's what mission is about. The reality is, is that because of sin and evil and death in the world, there are a lot of places in which God is not recognized as the Lord. There's places of rebellion and disobedience. Paul uses that language, or rather, um, yeah, it's Paul, uses the language of that God might be all in all, right? Think of the imagery of all in all. It's helpful to think about the contrast to all in all. Uh, the contrast might be part and parcel, right? Our experience of God in our lives and in this world is not all in all, but part and parcel. Like, God can have this little part of me, or this little part, but I'm, everything else is parceled out how we want it, right? But the goal of mission is that God might be all in all, recognized from top to bottom as the Lord of all creation. And so Jesus' mission is very simple. 
It is to deliver the kingdom to God. It is to destroy all the resistance and all the things that stand in the way of this creation and the things in creation, recognizing the Lord, God as the Lord, and to bring those things into subjection to him. So there is an undeniably political uh, dimension to the Christian understanding of mission. Mission has to do with the reign and rule of God within creation. Um, and again, this is the significance of the language of kingdom, right? We talk about the kingdom of God. Nevertheless, we go terribly wrong if we seek to grasp the political nature and dimensions of God's mission with um, human categories of politics and earthly ways of thinking about it. God's politics are not our politics. They're very different. And I think one of the hardest things about understanding, especially the book of Acts and when it talks about mission, is, is that mission is spoken of um, in terms of political categories. And yet, um, it's carried out by the early Christians not by means of trying to seek power in, in, in the political categories of our context. It's very different. Um, and the reason for this is rooted in the unique reality of Jesus' ascension into heaven. Jesus' ascension into heaven um, gives us a different kind of way to think about politics and power. Remember that ascension has to do with Jesus' enthronement, um, his coronation as the Lord. Our sacred reading uh, from Daniel 7 is this picture of the Ancient of Days, which is God, right? God the Father, if you will, in Trinitarian language. And all the nations and all the tribes and all the heavenly hosts are gathered before him in glory. And then there's this picture of this one called the Son of Man who's riding on the clouds. And he, the Son of Man, comes into the heavens and he is seated at the right hand, and he is recognized to be, and he is, he is enthroned, right? See, this, this is, you know, I, well, some of you have heard me talk about this, but the ascension of Jesus into heaven, right? You have the Son of Man riding the clouds into heaven, and from the perspective of Acts 1, you know, we have the scene from below the clouds. We don't see what's happening above the clouds, right? We just look into the clouds, and we see, oh, Jesus disappeared, but above the clouds, what's happening is what's happening in Daniel 7, is that the Son of Man has been enthroned, and all of the tribes and nations and languages have been oriented around him and his reign. This is a cosmic political act, and it marks the beginning of Christian mission. You see that? Um, at the beginning of Acts, when the disciples are with the resurrection, Jesus says Jesus was with his disciples and he was teaching them about the kingdom. And they eventually, of course, naturally ask him, well, Lord, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? When are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? See, they don't, they don't quite grasp yet what Jesus means by kingdom. You know, they're expecting very reasonably that, you know, Jesus is going to restore the nation of Israel. And by restore, what that means is, like, he's going to take political control and power like, a, like an earthly king. And he's going to liberate Israel from the bondage of the Roman Empire, cast off the Roman. He's going to drain the swamp of, of the temple, which is full of hypocrisy and corruption. He's going to gather in all the exiles from scattered across the world. He's going to restore the boundaries and territories that Israel once had. See, that's what, they're, that's what they think about um, when they understand kingdom language. And what's interesting is Jesus doesn't say, 
you know, you've got it all wrong. He doesn't rebuke them. But what he does is he completely reframes their expectations of kingdom. He gives them a new uh, reality to think about. And this is what he says to them. He says, it's not for you know the times and the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up on a cloud and taken out of their sight. See, Jesus turns, Jesus' ascension into heaven is completely unexpected. <laughs> it turns all of their expectations upside down of what they were thinking. They were not expecting him to leave. They thought he would be enthroned as the king of Israel and take control, right? But he ascends. But in ascending into heaven, he doesn't just become the king of Israel. He becomes the king and the Lord of all the nations. He is the Lord of all the nations. See, what, the one thing that they didn't understand is that they were right, that Jesus is the king of Israel. But he's not just the king of Israel. He's the king of Rome. He's the king of Russia. He's the king of the United States and Bolivia. He's the king of all the nations. And his enthronement in heaven uh, symbolizes that reality. And Christian mission then takes its response from that reality, that political reality that Jesus is enthroned in heaven. So mission is not just directed to Israel, but it's directed to all the nations. And so mission then uh, is sending out his disciples, not to become political operatives, but to become witnesses. Witnesses that proclaim the forgiveness of sins, which means the possibility of reconciliation with God the Creator, but also witnesses to the reality that Jesus is the Lord, the one who has a rightful claim on all the territories of the earth, all the territories of my life. And so Christian mission is, again, it's a political response to the enthronement of Jesus as the Lord. And yet again, it's, it's not politics how we think about politics. It's an upside-down kind of politics. Um, the story in Acts 17 here is, is I wanted to kind of, I know this is very high level, right? So I want to I kind of bring it down into the context of this story because what we see in this story is uh, you do not see uh, the disciples and, their, and the followers seeking political control or power or influence, but yet they're still charged with uh, political uh, sedition. Um, Paul and Silas, if you look at our story, uh, Paul and Silas, they go to Thessalonica and they teach in the synagogue for three weeks. And they gain a number of converts, both Jews, uh, but also some, some Gentiles or some Greeks and some, it says leading women, which is like influential, wealthy women. And uh, the Jews who run the synagogue um, were very upset by this, these conversions. And so what they do is they form a mob. They kind of, it says the riffraff. Um, these are agitators, people who agitate. Um, they create an uproar, basically uh, civil unrest and protest in the city. And because Paul and Silas have already left town, they, they then go to Jason, who lives there, who is one of the converts, and they drag him out of his home. And this is what they say. These men, and they're referring to the ministry of Paul and Silas, these men have turned the world upside down and have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, 
seeing that there is another king, Jesus. Uh, that word decree in the Greek is the word dogmata, or, you know, we get our word dogma, we, which we think of as a, like a core truths, right? But the decrees, the dogmas of Caesar, they're violating the dogmas of Caesar, and because of this, it is a form of political rebellion and sedition. And now you can imagine Jason, uh, you know, he's being dragged out of his house before a crowd, and he's like, you know, guys, this is a huge, huge misunderstanding, right? Yes, it is our custom to call Jesus the Lord of all and as the king, but we only mean it spiritually. We just mean it spiritually. We don't, we don't mean it, like, we don't mean it politically. You know, we, we're, all, we're all about the soul. We don't care about bodies. We're just about the soul. Caesar has nothing to fear here, right? And there's a sense in which that's true in the sense that um, it, it does have to do with the soul, and it's true that these, these men never are seeking, um, like, there were movements of political unrest, and they weren't doing any of that. They weren't trying to get a militia together. They weren't seeking office. They weren't seeking the normal means of control and power and influence. They're bearing witness. And yet, um, that activity um, is deeply, it says that word disturbing, right? It disturbs the social order. Again, instead of grasping for political power, um, the early Christians, I mean, what you see in the book of Acts is they're being arrested, they're being dragged out of their homes, they're being beaten, imprisoned, being expelled from cities, and in a few cases also like put to death and martyred, right? And yet the charges are true. And Luke wants us to know this. Like there's irony in the way he tells the story. The charges are true. The world is being turned upside down politically. It is being turned upside down politically because of this mission that is emanating from this group of Jews in Jerusalem across the Mediterranean world. But again, it's an upside down kind of politics. It's not politics as we think about it. In the rest of our time, I just want us to reflect for a little bit. What does it mean for us? What does it mean for us to proclaim Jesus as the King, as the Lord? Not just like a spiritual Lord, but in the sense that, that Acts in the Bible understands him. And um, I think there's, this is important for a number of reasons, because I think there are two, two ways that we are prone to misunderstand Christian mission. And the first way is that we tend to over-spiritualize mission. We say, well, it's about the forgiveness of sins. It's about the salvation of souls um, who, when they die, they go to heaven. It doesn't really have to do with bodily things and politics and culture. It doesn't, you know, it's, it's about the heart and it's about the soul, right? So we over-spiritualize, and there's a truth to this. Forgiveness of sins is the center of mission, the proclamation of it. But the other way that we misunderstand mission is we over-politicize it. In other words, we confuse Christian mission with uh, certain cultural Christian agendas um, that are sort of played out within the culture wars. And you you guys can fill in the blanks here in terms of those things. And so we think of Christian mission as uh, kind of bound up with a certain legislative accomplishment or grasping power as a nation in certain ways. And um, the reality is, is that mission is political and it is spiritual, but not at all in the way that we tend to order those things, which is why the ascension of Jesus is so important for us to understand. So I want to ask this question with the time we have left. What does it mean to proclaim Jesus as the Lord? as the king? What does it mean for us to embrace this? And the first thing, um, the first thing about proclaiming Christ as king 
is that when we proclaim him as the Lord, we proclaim him as a public truth. We proclaim him as the public truth. Christ as king isn't just an inner spiritual truth for the soul. It's a public truth. And again, think of what's the opposite of public, private. <laughs> uh, look at the language that is used to describe Paul's ministry in the synagogue. It says he's, it was his custom to go into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. A public truth is something that can be debated and disputed, right? And what's public about Jesus as the Lord? Well, he lived. Everybody know, nobody in this context is denying that Jesus was a real historical person, and most nobody today would do that that actually understands anything about history. He died, but he also rose from the dead, and he ascended into heaven. These are public, these are historical realities that happened. And Paul's going in and he's saying, listen, in the light of the scriptures, this is what this means, right? And you see that in the sermons and acts as um, focuses in on what God has done in history. Uh, to proclaim Jesus as king is to know him and proclaim him and embrace him as a public truth. And I think that we live in a culture that in, in ways we, we do not think about religion um, in these terms. We think in terms of spirituality. Um, spirituality has to do with the inner, the private, the subjective, what's about my experience. Uh, the phrase, you, which you, no doubt, most of you know, as people describe themselves, I'm spiritual, not religious, right? When somebody says they're spiritual, not religious, what are they saying? They're saying, you know, I'm not about the dogmas, the creeds, the institutions, the rituals, the, the bot, like, the church as an institution. Um, it's just me and God, right? Like, I have this spirituality. I have this thing that's really real, right? Uh, spiritual, not religious is, is not public, right? It's private. And you can't really, it's, it's person's experience, and you can't really debate um, a person's personal experience, right? Christianity is a historical faith, which is why it's a creedal religion. You know, we, we say the creed, that today we're not saying the Apostles' Creed, but a, um, a part of the Heidelberg Catechism about the Ascension. We believe the Ascension is actually a historical event that happened. And as Christians, we, we recite the creed, and what we're doing is that we believe this about God, that God has acted in history. He's done these things, and we affirm them. So again, this language that Paul uses about reasoning and explaining and proving, these are things you do if you believe that there's public truths that are true not just like for me personally and what I think about God in the world, but actually true for all people. Right? And that's, that's the important thing about Jesus as the Lord, as the King. It's true not just for me personally, yes, but it's true for all of creation, for all the nations, for every single human being that God created. It is true, whether they recognize it or not. It's universal. And so we can only speak in a really meaningful way about Jesus as the king when we recognize this truth, public truth dimension to who he is. And the way that we communicate that and the way we, we engage in mission in that is, is through witness. That's the, that's the language that, that that Jesus gives them, you will be my witnesses, right? Um, to be a witness is somebody who, who points to a reality that they've experienced, but that's outside of them. Now, um, when the gospel gets reduced uh, to a personal 
experience or a private gospel message of otherworldly salvation after you die, or the gospel is sort of like helps me live my best life now. Um, the danger that is all around is that our lives, ha- because we, we, our lives get co-opted uh, by Caesar, by the politics of Caesar. See, if, if, if it's just the inner spiritual reality that's true about the gospel, um, it's easy then for Caesar and the various manifestations of Caesar to claim my body and my politics and my imagination. And what ends up happening is we just get absorbed into the empire or whatever empire it is, right? See, spiritual, not religious, uh, that's Caesar's religion. That's Caesar's religion. Caesar wants you to be spiritual, not religious, because if that's true of who you are as a person, then he can still control your body in a way. But if Jesus is the king, if he's the Lord of all, um, it's not just part and parcel of my life, it's the all in all. It's every part of my life. He claims my politics, he claims my body and how I use it sexually, what I think about the world, how I treat people, how I use my money, how I order my, my, my schedule and my calendar. <clears throat> He's the Lord. So that's the first thing, public truth. And then the second one, the second um, way, when we proclaim Christ as the king, that's a, a public truth, and we embrace this, what happens is it creates new allegiances. It, it creates new allegiances. If Jesus is really the king, the proper response is I pledge my whole life to him. And what this forms is new kinds of allegiances, right? And again, you see this in the story. Um, you know, of the, the, that what happens, what's so disruptive about these conversions um, in Thessalonica is these, these Greeks and these Jews become Christians, and then their, their, their allegiances politically and communally and socially begin to shift and change. And it disrupts what was the order of things. But the focus on allegiance has always has to do with the heart. And I, I think this is so important. Um, the political power of mission in the Bible is always used with this category of witness. And think about what it means to be a witness, say, in a, in a trial, a legal trial. As a witness, um, you, you saw something, a person's character or something that they did or they did not do that they're being accused of, and you offer public testimony to that that can be cross-examined, right? That's very much the sense of witness. In, the, in Acts. We bear witness to this Jesus and what he did. But as witnesses, it becomes more than just a kind of legal thing. It becomes witness to this reality that God has gripped my heart and changed me, right? Bearing witness is the poli- the, this unique activity by which Jesus extends his, his kingdom, right? Witness is how Jesus seeks to uh, bring all things under his feet. Not through domineering political power, not by controlling behavior or wielding power, but by persuading the heart. And this is the thing you see in the book of Acts again and again, this language of the heart. When Peter preaches in Acts 2, it says, after they heard his sermon, it says they're cut to the heart. And they responded, how can we be saved? Uh, God, and here, Lydia, here's the preaching of Paul. And it says she was cut to the heart, or she opened her heart. Christ is the king of our hearts. And that's how he rules the world. He rules the world like a lover rules his or her beloved. 
You think about that, you know, the power that your spouse or your children have over you is that you love them and you would do anything to please them. And that's how Jesus rules us. That's how God wants to rule the world. He doesn't want to have to rule the world uh, by, you know, just divine command and do it because I'm God. He wants us to rule. He wants to rule the world because we love him and we want to do what he is or who he is. And I think it's important for us never to underestimate the power of the heart for changing the world. Because again, it'd be easy to hear what I'm saying and say, well, it sounds like a spiritualized gospel to me, what you're saying, but not at all. The heart is the most powerful force for change in the world. The heart is the most powerful, like the, the state can control our bodies, but the state cannot control our hearts, right? I mean, you can control bodies and what we do with our bodies uh, through law and, and various means, but no government, no state can command the heart. But he who owns the heart, or he who can command the heart, commands the body. And again, that, that's Jesus' aim, and that's the aim of mission. Because from the heart flow all the political and the social and the cultural realities. And so conversion, then, is, is us aligning our lives and our allegiances with the reality of Jesus. Who he is, what he said, what he has done. And then what this happens is this begins to reshape how our lives are ordered. And this is where things get political. And this is where they get disruptive. Because no longer uh, are we living according to the orders of the culture, right? Um, later in Acts, there's a, there's a riot that is stirred up by a bunch of silversmiths and a man named Demetrius. Because all these people in Ephesus are becoming Christians. And in, Christa, in, in Ephesus, there's this, there is a shrine to Artemis. And the silversmiths are... Their whole economy is built on, on um, you know, uh, selling things for worship to Artemis. But people become Christians and they stop buying things. And so they're, the, the economy is shriveling up. And they're so upset that they, there's a riot. See, this is how, this is how um, the Christians turn the world upside down. They don't do it because they're, you know, it's a traditional means. They do it because Jesus becomes the Lord of people's hearts. Okay. So Jesus, uh, last, last point here. So to embrace Jesus as king is to respond to that he, it's a public truth. It's not just a private spiritual truth. Um, it creates new allegiances. New allegiances. And the final point is this. Um, one of the allegiances that it creates is this, is... Um, it creates an allegiance to belonging to the body of Christ. That's, that's the thing that you see throughout Acts, is that when people become Christians, it's not like they completely cut off all their other community allegiances, but one new one becomes the center of their life, and it has to do with them belonging to the community of faith, the church. That conversion leads to community. Community in the body of Jesus Christ and when that community lives out its life, what they be, what they become as a community is a visible a representation of Jesus as Lord in the world. The visible reign of God is reflected in how their community works and operates and relates to itself. And this is the final point. 
um, the reign of God, the politics of Jesus and the ascension have their center in the local life of the church. The church is a place where re- like that future resurrection reality ought to be, we, we should get a display, we should get a preview, right? Some people, they talk about the church as a display community. And for sure, we are uh, still sinful and broken in all kinds of different ways. But there's a way that our lives, when, when we bring our hearts in obedience to Jesus as Lord, however imperfect um, we are in the way we relate and treat one another in the world, there's still a sense in which that when people look at the community of faith and they should see, ah, that's what the visible reign of Jesus might look like someday. A little outpost of resurrection. And when that happens, what happens is that God is all in all. <laughs> he becomes all in all in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, thank you uh, for your ascension into heaven, and these are challenging um, thoughts that pushes us out of our normal frameworks. But Lord, help us to have a sense of the glory of Christ that reigns, and a sense that with his reign, he gives us the Spirit as well that uh, we are not alone, that you pour out your spirit upon our lives to be your witnesses and to live the reality of your lordship in our lives and as a community in this world. And so I pray, my prayer, Lord, for our church and our community, that we would be an outpost of resurrection in the world, that we would be a, a visible manifestation and display of what will be true when you come again and all things are subjected to you as the Lord. We give you thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen.